welcome to episode 114 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Sam Shaw. Sam is a writer and creator of the WGN America show Manhattan, which is currently airing Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can give Sam a follow on Twitter at Shaw Sam. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thrilled to talk to you. Well, let's start at the beginning, Sam. Tell me what initially attracted you to writing in the first place. Oh, man. Uh, Wow. Way back in the prehistory. You know, I just I was a kid who um, loved stories. I guess uh, most writers are, Uh, you know, even at the age of four or five, six, uh, I, uh, you know, I'd spend all my free time um, uh, scribbling on the backs of those um, cardboard sheets that would get stuck in my dad's dry clean shirts. Uh, he would keep them for me so that I could write on them because I'd run out of writing paper. Uh, you know, it was just it was um, something I loved to do, and that kind of continued to be the case through high school and college and graduate school. I, I uh, went to grad school for fiction writing, and um, it's just sort of been part of um, the everyday experience of life for me for a really long time. You were a part of the famed Iowa Writers Workshop. Tell me about that group and what came of it for you. You know, it was the it was the greatest couple of years of my life, just about. Um, yeah, I uh, wrote fiction in college. I wrote a novel as my college thesis, and uh, and then afterward, I um, like a lot of people, uh, and particularly like a lot of English majors, I graduated, and I wasn't really sure what the future held, and I spent. Uh, about six months living in Costa Rica and poking around and writing. And uh, and then I took a job in advertising in New York, and that was confusing because there were sort of glimmers of uh, of creative satisfaction for me. Um, but then there were these huge swaths of uh, boredom and frustration. Uh, and uh, then I guess it was um, right around September 11 in New York. I was working downtown. I was very close to uh, Ground Zero. Um, uh, and it happened, and uh, it was a sort of moment where I realized I wasn't doing what I wanted to be doing. So I applied to grad school. I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop, and you know, I, I, it's the, the program is um, famous, and um, it is the object of a whole lot of mythology. Uh, you know, there have been huge numbers of incredibly brilliant, uh, sort of the leading lights of. 20th century American fiction and 21st century American fiction who've passed through that program. Um, so like a lot of people, I, I felt a little bit like I was buying a scratch off lotto ticket. Like there was no chance I was going to get in, but um, I owed it to myself to give it a shot. And then I did get in uh, and it was amazing uh, for a whole variety of ways. But part of it was um, just to be on a kind of desert island, uh, which is not to discredit Iowa city. The town of Iowa city is a fantastic place um, but when you come from New York City, there's not a lot to do there in Iowa except to work on the thing that you love. And you're sort of stranded on this desert island with a bunch of other smart people who care about the same increasingly culturally marginalized thing that you care about and love. And so you read books all day, you teach, you write, uh, and then you, if you're me, you stay up until the very wee hours at bars and double-wide trailers drinking, you know, cheap macro brew beer and arguing about similes. And and that was the life for a couple of years. And I I really loved it. Writing fiction and writing screenplays or teleplays are two fundamentally different skills. How did you transition from one style of writing to the other? (laughs) Slowly. 
they are very different. They're very different. You know, I was a real prose guy. As a fiction writer, I just – the writers that I loved were stylists. Uh, you know, I, I, I could spend uh, a day just sort of like basking in the glow of uh, Nabokov's metaphors. Um, you know, writing for television or for film, it is a really different discipline. Um, and it took me some time to learn, uh, you know, what the fundaments are of that form. And so the, the first thing for me was I just read a huge amount um, just to, to fill in the blanks. Uh, I had a, a great friend who uh, had been a novelist. His name is Dustin Thomason, and he co-wrote a book called The Rule of Four, which was a huge mega bestseller, um, uh, a, uh, kind of in the vein of The Da Vinci Code, um, this sort of literary thriller. Uh, and he'd moved to L.A. and started writing for TV and created a cop show on ABC and invited me to do some work on it uh, from New York, from Brooklyn, where I was writing fiction and, and working as a journalist, too. Uh, and in the process of doing that, the first thing I did was I just sort of I read everything I could get my hands on. Um, that kind of became part of the job for me was um, just to become an omnivore. Uh, and in a way, I think that was half of my education in TV and in film was just um, was reading. You know, I had a great... A fiction teacher at Iowa, Ethan Kanan, who's a really brilliant story writer and novelist who liked to describe himself as a, not so much as a writer, but as a reader who was moved to emulation. And I kind of feel the same way. And so um, loving the form was part of learning the form. Did you have to sort of adjust everything with your agents? Obviously, you probably had an agent at that point for fiction and for writing novels, but uh, literary agents for TV, different thing. Did you have to get a new agent and start a whole new process when you got that job? I did get a new agent, a TV agent, and that was also a really uh, lucky fly ball for me that I caught, which is that early on I, I co-wrote a pilot for FX, um, uh, a time travel pilot, actually, with Dusty Thomason, and I was represented when we sold that pilot uh, by Dusty's agent, who's a really fantastic um, agent at CAA, and I've been with him ever since, and he was a great steward and champion of not just my work and my career, but of Manhattan in particular. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to Joe Cohen at CAA for um, helping to bring this show that I love, that I've been working on now for many years, Manhattan, um, to TV screens all across America. Did you, in the transitioning into television writing, did you have to adjust to the more collaborative form of writing? I did and I didn't. So here's the sort of um, <laughs> here's here's the basic um, emotional experience that I had when I left Iowa is is um, Iowa for me was um, this incredible um, creative experience. It was also an incredible social experience. And in that respect, I think it really misled me about what it is to be a fiction writer. Um, you know, because I, as I say, I was surrounded by people who loved the same thing that I loved, and we were constantly talking and debating and sharing books. And um, you know, uh, I met my wife there. We were classmates uh, at Iowa, and many of my best friends. And then I moved to New York uh, to write fiction. And uh, you know, New York is a city whose rhythms are all organized around the kind of um, structures of traditional work. Um, increasingly, it's a big, you know, it's a city driven by finance. And when you're a guy who sits at home and writes all day, uh, at a certain point, you start to feel a little bit like a ghost. It's like the tagline of Alien in Space, no one can hear you scream. It's like, I, I, increasingly, I felt like I could 
uh, die in my apartment and no one, no one would ever know. It's like my, my cat would, would, would eat me and there would just be a skeleton in there. And, like that. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so I, the truth is um, writing had become a social experience for me. It had become a shared cultural experience for me. I mean, there's something so intimate about sharing a book with someone. Uh, and, and I missed, I missed that. I missed having colleagues. I missed, I missed having colleagues I didn't like. You know, I missed having someone else I could resent other than just myself if I had a bad day. And so uh, the truth is, uh, while I have a lot of friends who work in TV or in film who will gripe about the process of getting notes from the network or working with other producers, um, I love it. You know, my sort of dark secret is um, I'm thrilled that there are a lot of other people who care about the same project that I care about enough to invest their talents into making it the best version of itself it can be. Uh, so uh, so it was, that was a really gratifying part of this work. I want to get into Manhattan in just a minute, but before I, I talk about Manhattan, you wrote for Masters of Sex last year. Tell me about that experience in that writer's room. It was, it was amazing. It was amazing. So, yeah, I got hired to write on Masters of Sex um, by Michelle Ashford, who created the show, who is brilliant and just incredibly cool and one of my favorite human beings. Um, I, I had read a, a lot of pilot scripts uh, that year. In fact, I read basically all of them because uh, I was looking for work. And far and away, the one that stuck with me, that I was moved by, that I was confounded by and intrigued by was this, was this brilliant piece of writing by Michelle. And um, so it, was, it, it, uh, it, it felt incredibly lucky to get a chance to work on that show. Um, she hired me on the basis of the script for the first episode of Manhattan, which I had written you know, a few years earlier. Uh, and, and I think actually it's not totally coincidental that she did because the two shows share some basic DNA. I mean, there are some aspects of them. They both deal with science. Um, they both deal with this sort of murky place where issues of science kind of uh, become confused with issues of morality and human nature. And, uh, you know, they're both set in the middle of the 20th century and involve a fair amount of research and and aspects of comedy as well as drama. Um, uh, so I got hired to work on that show, and um, it was a huge education in all things television for me. But part of what was so great and so gratifying was that I got to spend a lot of time uh, learning from Michelle, learning from Amy Lipman, who's another executive producer on the show, who's so brilliant and, and uh, was so great to me. So um, I, I, I loved it. It was so, and by the way, writing for those actors who were so brilliant for Michael Sheen and Lucy Kaplan and Allison Janney and Bo Bridges and um, so it was great. It, it was it was the second best job I've ever had, and uh, the only job that ever could have taken me away from Masters of Sex was this chance to uh, to actually make Manhattan, which is had been a, a kind of labor of love for me for many many years by then. Well, let's talk about Manhattan. When did you first write your first draft of the pilot script? Oh God, it feels like it was 1945. It was uh, I think it was um, 2008. I want to say um, so. It was uh, it was quite a while ago. And that was all on spec. It was. It was. You know, I, I uh, was living in Brooklyn. I had done some work in TV. I wanted to do more um, on the advice of some friends and agents. Uh, I decided that I was going to write a spec pilot. Um, but it's, it's very hard to sit down and do that if your vision is that it's just um, – or, or put it this way. It was hard for me to do that 
um, with just the idea that it was a kind of means to an end and not potentially something that could have life in the world on its own. And, uh, and I, you know, I really fell in love with this project. I sort of sat down to write the thing that I would most like to see on TV. Yeah, I wasn't chasing the market or thinking about, you know, what, um, might capture the imagination of, uh, somebody who was hiring. I, I just, I just wrote something that I loved sort of revolves around a group of scientists and their extended family who are in a race to build the, the first atomic bomb. How much research did you have to do about the project to make the script feel more authentic? Sickening amounts of research, uh, really repulsive amounts of research. I love, I, I love uh, that aspect of the job. I, I love the fact that being a writer means that I get to become a lot smarter about something that I'm not that smart about. I, I wasn't a, a big history uh, wonk, and I certainly am not a physicist. But um, when I sat down to write this piece, and actually it began as a totally different show in my mind. I, I began writing uh, something that was set in the present day and was about the war on terror. It's actually about uh, people who were involved in secret government work and what the toll is of secrecy in their private lives for a whole bunch of reasons. I wound up sort of shelving that project. Uh, in part, it just felt really difficult to write about emotionally charged current events with any kind of objectivity. So, uh, and along the way, I had read a bit about the Manhattan Project, and more and more it came to seem to me uh, to be the kind of nexus of all of these different strands that we're still trying to figure out and that are tangled up together in the present day issues of uh, the sort of trade offs between uh, freedom. Uh, and security issues about the relationship between politics and science, issues about transparency and secrecy, um, both at the family level and cultural level and, uh, you know, at the level of the government. Um, so so I, I, I basically went down a rabbit hole and I read everything that I could possibly find about uh, the history of the bomb and the cultural fallout of the Manhattan Project. And it's a very, very, very deep well um, that I'm still kind of swimming in now. I mean, I'm looking around at my office and there are probably two or 300 books that line the shelves here that are all, uh, and it's a sort of ever-expanding library. Um, and the good news is the other writers who work on this show with me, they love research as much as I do. And so it's been kind of a fundamental um, part of the process for us. Well, let me ask you about assembling a writer's room. You get a show on the air, which is exciting, but now you're in charge of the show and you have to get a group of writers together. How did you go about assembling your team? That is a really, it's a really peculiar process because um, agents begin to bombard you with material when you're in this position, which is, uh, you know, I feel very lucky to have been in this position. Um, and you read a huge amount and, uh, and there's a lot of work that... Um, just immediately, you know, is not the right fit. Um, there's a lot of work that falls into a kind of grayer area. And at some level, I think you just trust your gut. There's just, there's work that breaks through the clutter and speaks to you. It also happens for me that I had the advantage of um, having some writers whose work I knew really, really well, um, people who I really respected, uh, who I was able to uh, seduce to come on over and work on the show with me. So uh, Dusty Thomason, uh, my old friend who gave me my first job in television, is an executive producer on our show. Uh, a guy named Mark Lafferty, who wrote this past week's episode of the show, was another classmate of mine and my wife's uh, at the Writers' Workshop in Iowa. Um, 
my wife is a writer on our show as well, who you know is the uh, the best writer I know. And um, and then we uh, we hired a bunch of other writers as well, uh, who who um, each brought something else to the um, to the uh, the writers' room. In a way, it's almost like. Um, you know, it's like assembling a, a group of superheroes. You kind of want everybody in that room to have something particular that he or she brings to the to the table. You had some experience, obviously, with Masters of Sex and the ABC pilot, uh, the police show, but you don't you didn't have a ton of TV experience before becoming a showrunner. Is that nerve wracking having to run a writer's room? Was that first time you were running the room sort of like, oh, what I'm in charge of these people? It is in a way. Uh, what was lucky for me is that I've spent a really long time living with this project, and so I, I, I knew what I wanted, and I knew what the show was, and uh, that's something that I think is really important. It's important to have um, some clarity of what you're driving toward, uh, and from there, you know, maybe this is a byproduct of my time at the workshop, but um, I actually feel really comfortable uh uh, sitting in a room with a bunch of people and and um, and working out creative ideas. It's something that I, I love. I mean, that part of the job um, doesn't really feel like work. It feels like play almost. There's plenty that does feel like work. And, you, you know, there are those days where you're, you know, you feel like blood is about to start leaking out of your ears. But, um, but the time in the writer's room for me is actually, um, for the most part, really pleasurable. When you were reading through scripts of potential writers to hire, were they specs of existing shows or were they specs of original works, original pilots or whatever? Almost everything I read was original work. Uh, I, I, in fact, I'm, I'm not sure, and this, I think, reflects a certain um, shift in the advice that agents are giving to young writers. Um, I'm not sure that I read a single spec episode, actually. So there were a lot of uh, – we, we were looking for – um, some more senior level writer producers because a number of the people I knew I wanted to hire were more junior. Um, and so f for those writers, I read a fair number of their produced episodes of shows that are on TV. Um, but other, other than that, it was really, um, spec and, or, you know, original pilots that, that people had written. How long were you pitching the show before you eventually found a home on WGN America? Uh, once again, it feels like it was 1945 when I started. We, we uh, you know, part of the thing for me in this process was um, finding exactly the right partners for this show. Uh, period shows are really hard to do on television. You know, I, you could have written a laundry list of all the reasons why um, this show was uh, a uh, a tough show to produce and a tough sale to a network. Um, not only the uh, the fact that it's a period show, um, which has all kinds of production challenges and marketing challenges, but uh, the fact that it deals with nuclear physics, which at least on the surface of it is not the um, the most sizzling uh, the topic of conversation. I mean, it's people don't do it in bathing suits. Um, uh, you know, um, and it, it's an ensemble show too for a, for a whole variety of reasons. It was um, a tricky show to sell. Uh, so the first kind of great piece of um, luck for me was partnering up with Tommy Schlamy, who's, uh, you know, brilliant and um, uh, much uh, lauded and uh, Emmy awarded uh, director of the West Wing and, um, and Sports Night and many other shows and movies. And 
how did you two come together? You know, we have the same we have the same agent. I wish there was a better story to tell. Um, I wish I could tell you that I camped out on, on his lawn or something, but uh, we we have the same agent, and and Joe Cohen at CAA passed. Uh, the script for Manhattan along to Tommy's office and we sat down a couple of days later and uh, had a great time talking and and we've been talking basically every every day ever since and um, and he's he has just been an incredible uh, asset and ally and partner to me at every level um, it, you know and it, you asked about the challenges of being a first-time showrunner um, the secret weapon that I had uh, was Tommy Shlami, who was, um, you know, uh, incredibly supportive in every way, um, besides being just a brilliant storyteller. Um, so uh, Tommy and I partnered up. Uh, we um, talked to a lot of people, and we wound up partnering up with uh, David Ellison and Dana Goldberg uh, and Marcy Ross at Skydance, which is, uh, you know, a company that's best known for big tentpole movies like the, you know, the um, – uh, Star Trek movies and you know big um, uh, big event movies and so in some ways it seemed like a, a unusual choice for them but uh, they really fell in love with this project and they wanted it to be their first foray into TV and then we um, uh, we partnered up also with Lionsgate and um, together we went and talked to a lot of networks and uh, had some great meetings uh, at a bunch of places and um, were sort of uh, uh, slowly moving forward with uh, another network. And then we met with WGN and they uh, gave us the opportunity to go straight to series with the show to kind of forego the whole pilot process and um, and just set off and make 13 episodes. And that was an offer we couldn't refuse. WGN America um, is very new into developing their own original series. I think you're the second series to make the e to make the air. How do they approach notes given that it's so new to them? Well, it's new to them as a network, but uh, the team at WGN uh, has a huge amount of experience. They're really seasoned. Um, and in fact, I've done some work with uh, with uh, Matt Chernis, who. Uh, uh, runs a network before. He actually was at FX when I wrote this pilot for FX 10 years ago or, or so. Um, so uh, so I, I, I think that process for them is old hat. But there are some things that were unique about working with a new network. Um, and part of it is that uh, they're in a position uh, where they can take chances on material that um, some more established networks um, won't take chances on. You know, it's, there's so much talk about this golden age of TV that we're living in right now, um, and I think new networks are responsible for so much of what has been great over the last decade or 15 years, starting with HBO when they, you know, when they did uh, Sex and the City and then The Sopranos and then FX with their first wave of shows that totally changed the way people thought about basic cable to AMC and more recently Sundance. And, um, you know, so I, I think uh, WGN is just uh, is um, just the latest network um, on this frontier of um, original programming in places where uh, you maybe haven't seen original programming before. So now you have a network, you have writers, you have actors, you're ready to shoot. How do you find the balance between um, not making it too scientific and building the relationships between the characters? Well, you know, it is um, it is a bit of a balancing act, and it's not one um, that we're 
intellectual about. You know, we don't have an algorithm or a set of hard and fast rules about, uh, you know, how often we need to tell a story that fundamentally re revolves around physics. I mean, there are essential dramatic challenges uh, to a show that uh, that deals centrally with science. Um, we knew that going into the show and figuring out how to tell science stories and how to make a really arcane subject matter accessible to the viewer without talking down to the viewer, um, that was that was tricky. You know, uh, uh, Tommy worked on The West Wing for many years. I think The West Wing is a great example of a show that never condescended to its audience. Um, you know, it asks a lot of its audience. It asks the audience to lean in. Um, there are politicos on The West Wing who talk like politicos, who don't take time to define their terms, you know. And so my experience of watching that show, sort of like my experience of watching Mad Men, um, is that, uh, you know, probably 15% of the dialogue just flies right over my head. And that's okay for me um, because it builds a feeling of the credibility and texture of the world. Um, the same thing was true for us. We had to figure out how to write a show, um, many of whose characters are the biggest brains on the planet, uh, and to do it credibly, but to do it without alienating or boring an audience um, uh, so that, that was sort of the, the trick for us. And um, in the end, uh, the answer was that um, we were as interested by what happened at home around kitchen tables at two in the morning as we were in, you know, what happened in a laboratory at four in the afternoon. And, and so finding a way to um, represent all aspects of the incredibly complicated and strange life of this town that produced this weapon that we're still reckoning with 70 years later, um, that was sort of the key to it for us was finding a feeling of, um, you know, of uh, symmetry or balance. Did it help that you have a real-life event that actually happened, but the characters on the show are fictional? And I, I wonder if that helps you because you can expand them more. You're not set into a certain stone as to real-life characters. You were coming from Masters of Sex where the characters portrayed on the show are real characters. They were real people at that time. And I wonder if having fictionalized characters helps the creativity a little bit more. Well, it was helpful to me, and it was just part of the vision for the show from the beginning. There have been movies, and uh, and there's certainly a lot of books about the experiences of the big, bold-faced kind of protagonists of this story, Robert Oppenheimer on the science side and General Leslie Groves on the military side, you know, who set up uh, Los Alamos and oversaw the Manhattan Project. Um, from the beginning, it, it was important to me to tell a story about uh, – everybody else, uh, you know, about what it was to be a wife in this town, what it was to be a junior scientist, what it was to be uh, a scientist on uh, on the losing side of history and um, or ostensibly on the lo losing side of history and, and, and also to be able to write about what home life was like for those people. So I, I found it very liberating. Our kind of rule was that uh, while we are as accurate as we can possibly be when it comes to the history and the science, you know, this isn't a speculative history show or an uh, alternative history show where an atomic bomb is going to get dropped on Chicago. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in that context, you know, unless, unless ratings really sag and <laughs> so we'll see, and then the, the zombies show up. Um, but, um, but within that context, uh, we tell character stories and, and the, the kind of, um, the sweet spot for us is where we um, access the history 
through character first, you know, where the show is, is really um, centrally about what's happening, about the secrets and betrayals and mistakes and discoveries in the lives of these characters that then um, uh, turn the gears of history. I want to mix it up a little bit. I want to ask you about what mistakes you see young writers make the most often. Hmm. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I, you know, I read a fair amount of work by um, by young writers uh, uh, who are asking for an eye or for advice. And um, it, one, one thing is um, I read a lot of uh, work by young writers who haven't read enough work by more experienced writers. Um, you know, I, I think um, a, a funny thing about writing is that because we're all consumers of uh, television and uh, fiction to a certain extent, although sadly fewer and fewer people read fiction, um, you know, because we all speak English and we uh, write emails to our friends and text messages, um, there's a sort of uh, illusion that um, that we're already, uh, you know, versed in the, the um, rules and the basics of constructing fiction, constructing television. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, I read a lot of um, early work by writers that uh, lacks subtext, where characters um, just say what they're thinking instead of um, doing what we all do every day, which is to uh, sort of uh, uh, hide what we're really thinking and find scant ways of communicating to each other and trying to accomplish what we want. Um, I think the other thing is that uh, is that I, I read a lot of work by um, young writers uh, that doesn't fully appreciate how structural TV is. Um, you know, just the construction of stories and the setting up of dynamics within a story. Um, you know, that's uh, that's eighty percent or eighty-five percent of the work. You know, is making sure that there is a foundation and a structure for the house before the paint of you know of witty dialogue uh, goes on top of it. What mistakes do you feel you make most often, or what's your weakness still as a writer? Too much attention to the paint of witty dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, uh, I think it's the part of me that, um, that uh, it's a, it is the legacy of, of, of my love of sentences. Um, many of the uh, writers in television and film who I love best are great stylists and, and um, they write um, crackling dialogue and I'm a sucker for crackling dialogue. And I will say that some of the scenes that I'm proudest of uh, that we produced this year um, in a season of TV that I'm really, really proud of, some of them are scenes with no dialogue at all or with very little. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a fascinating thing. It's really fascinating uh, when you uh, see that scenes that are brilliant on the page are not always necessarily the scenes that are most powerful or brilliant in their execution. You know, um, the great thing about TV, not just in the writer's room, but, uh, but just writ large, is that it's a collaborative medium. You know, when it works, it's the product of hundreds of people bringing their talents to bear. And so figuring out how to... Um, how to write for the cast that you've got, how to write for the directors who are working on your show, how to use your, uh, your production design to your best advantage. Um, that's, that's, um, that's a great uh, challenge and lesson, and that's a thing that I, I think I've learned a lot about over time over this year. 
Yeah, silence is a very powerful tool when writing or when you're on stage. I come from a background with a lot of improv and sketch comedy, and if someone uh, would go out by themselves and just be quiet at first, it would freak people out, and you would see people from the side come in and start talking. Um, but it, at times, you just want those silent scenes to be there, like to do a silent scene on stage in front of a live audience. You can come back the next scene and do a big scene that will make everybody laugh, but silence can change emotion greatly, and it's a very underused tool in writing across the board. Oh, Absolutely. You know, I'll tell you, um, a lot of the writers who I, as I say, who I, I sort of worship at the altar of in television and film are, um, they're really verbally dexterous and they're, there's a lot of loggeria and people who talk a lot and, and it's rapid fire. Um, but there are moments in television that have um, blown me away uh, and taught me great lessons um, over the last few years. Uh, and most of them most of them were silent. You know, there, there's a, a not to get spoilery, but um, uh, there is a moment in one of the first four or five episodes of the first season of Breaking Bad that involves uh, Walt making a discovery when he reconstructs the pieces of a broken plate. Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to say too much more about it because um, anybody who hasn't seen that first season should, uh, as soon as they're finished listening to this podcast, immediately download it and watch it. I mean, it's been uh, seven years. I don't think we're spoiling anything at this point. All right, fine. Right. So, so do, do you remember this moment? It's an incredible moment where it's a story about uh, Walt um, wrestling with his conscience and deciding whether or not he's going to take the life of this guy who he's keeping captive down in his basement. And uh, he brings this guy a sandwich on a plate. I think, and uh, the plate um, shatters, and he and and he's sort of decided that he's going to let this guy go, and he brings the um, he, he he takes these um, pieces of the plate, uh, and he he uh, throws them away, and then he has this terrible thought. You watch it dawn on his face, and he takes out the pieces of the plate, and he reassembles them into a plate, and discovers that there is a piece missing, and he understands that what it means is that the guy downstairs has taken this shard of plate and is preparing to stab him with the piece of plate when he gets downstairs, and it's just this incredible, riveting, terrible moment. Uh, where this thing that has been a totem of kindness of, of giving food becomes a weapon and where he understands that he has to cross this Rubicon and take this human life. And it's just, it's everything. And it's all transacted without a word. Um, that's really powerful storytelling in a medium TV that is fundamentally a medium of visual storytelling. I agree completely, and it helps when you have an actor like Brian Cranston who can pull that off as well. I always like to ask the TV writers who come on what shows they're watching. What television shows are you watching? Well, last night my wife and I watched the last episode of The Honorable Woman uh, on Sundance, which is incredible. I, I think it's it's just incredibly brilliant, and it's challenging, and it's messy at times, um, but that's okay. I, you know, I love work that dares uh, to make mistakes. Um, God knows uh, we do on our show. Um, I, I loved this first season of The Leftovers. I, I was really confounded and interested by it and surprised by it. Uh, what else? The Good Wife uh, is just ramping up again, and uh, I have the first episode waiting on uh, my DVR at home. Can't wait to see it. Uh, this is the last season of Boardwalk Empire, and I'm a huge fan of Terry Winters and Howard Corder, who writes for that show also. They're just extraordinarily brilliant writers. Um, that's sort of what's, what's happening for me right now on TV. You've been listening to Sam Shaw. Sam is a writer and the creator of the WGN American show Manhattan, which is currently airing Sunday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern. You can give Sam a follow on Twitter at Shaw Sam. Sam, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. 